Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Talk Recorded live. Good evening. Today is Thursday, June 25th, and we are hosting our June PTAC meeting. And it's a very exciting evening because the Supreme Court rule today and what I felt was a very historic measure um, besides some of the decisions that they were making housing discrimination was something that I was keenly concerned about because housing discrimination directly leads to educational discrimination because most local school districts obtain their funding from property taxes so if you have a, a situation where you go back to the 1960s then you've in essence rolled back the clock on so many different things so it's an exciting day because we learned today that they are not going to change um, what had been put into place uh, almost immediately after Dr. King's assassination in 1968 I mean that literally would have been taking us way back in time and I'm also excited because we have a special guest, Joe Swanson, who's a community organizer. He does this work full-time. It is his passion to help regular people organize themselves so that they can protect their constitutional rights, their civic rights, and just understand how the laws um, impact them and what we can do as a PTAC group um, as we're in our infancy to be ahead of the game and not always be responding emotionally to things that happen in the media, but we're always kind of working towards um, equality and justice proactively. And we're excited that we have um, representation tonight from um, the state of New York, the state of Georgia, the state of Virginia, and let's see if anyone else has joined us. Okay, so that's what we have right now, and as people come on, this will be recorded so that they can get caught up to speed and um, act accordingly um, in the next 30 days when we meet again. So without further ado, um, Joe, I would like for you to introduce yourself to our listening audience as well as our representatives um, that are on the call now, and just assume we know nothing about the ACLU. Not even what the acronym stands for. <laughs> uh, gotcha. All right. Well, can can everybody hear me? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Perfect. So um, uh, I'll start by just like you said, introducing myself. Uh, my name is Joe Swanson. I'm the Dallas Regional Community Organizer with the ACLU of Texas. Um, so basically, my job um, is to kind of advocate, you know, for the ACLU and the community, but also um, to be able to respond and have an organic, um, or I should say more organic uh, um, attack, right, on, on the systems of injustice, right? Uh, because some people think of the ACLU as an organization, if, if you've even heard of us. In fact, I'll go ahead and install our acronym. We're the American Civil Liberties Union. Um, and I am in the Texas affiliate of the American Civil Liberties Union. Um, a lot of people think of us as kind of an organization 
that, you know, drops in, parachutes in lawyers from out of town, and then, you know, files suits against, you know, a school district or somebody for doing something unconstitutional. And then, you know, we leave and, and we don't really create infrastructure. Well, um, the ACLU of Texas, at least, has shifted from that kind of ad hoc, top-down model and is starting to really focus on uh, improving in community infrastructure and, and working and empowering rather than disempowering uh, organizing structures and, and tactics, right? Um, in fact, we're, we're starting to turn our entire philosophy into uh, what you might want to call an integrated advocacy model, right? So the model uh, would include kind of the three areas where we work. So, so kind of if I were to say kind of the mission statement of the ACLU of Texas is we, we advance and defend uh, civil liberties in the courts. Uh, we do it in the state house. And then we do it in the grassroots, and in, in that last one, in the grassroots, that's that's my arena. So uh, I'm not a lawyer, you know, so I can't answer legal questions, I mean, legally speaking, right? Uh, but I'm, I'm very engaged in a lot of the campaigns that we have on the ground here. Um, we And a lot of what we're doing in the Dallas area is around racial justice because um, while Dallas, I mean, Every, I mean, racism is an air we breathe, right? But that fog tends to be a little bit denser once you start heading uh, towards the East Texas area, which is actually where I grew up. Um, so uh, does anybody have any questions right off the bat? Because I, I know there's some, kind of a smaller group, so I, I love to – I like to, you know, have some back and forth if anybody has any questions or, like, you know, wants to make a statement. Not to put you on the spot, but where did it start, the ACLU? And then are there chapters or branches, if you will, throughout every state? So we have a we have a we have an affiliate in every state, to my knowledge. Now, uh, Puerto Rico and Hawaii, you know, those, those I'm not quite sure about those, but as far as I'm aware, yes, we do have affiliates in every state. Um, and I'm not quite sure about the national story about our beginnings. We began really early on. In fact, during uh, McCarthyism, you know, there, the ACLU was cited by McCarthy as a as a organ as a uh, divisive, subversive organization, you know, that's affiliated with the communist cause. And of course, you know, like everybody in his mind, everybody was affiliated with the communist cause. That wasn't mm-hmm. him, right? So, I mean, our our our, our roots go deep back far into uh, into American history, especially considering how relatively new that American history is, at least coming from the uh, white Eurocentric perspective as opposed from the, the recognition of Native Americans being here before we were, right? Um, but uh, anybody have any other questions before I move on into kind of what we're doing here in the area? No, not right now, maybe. Okay, perfect, perfect. Okay, so um, if we're just going to talk about uh, racial justice and if we're going to – Start with McKinney. I mean, I can I can talk start talking a little bit about more of our other campaigns that we have on the ground to deal with racial justice in in my area. But in in McKinney, I mean, as yeah, what we'd like to that, know in McKinney is is there a difference? Is there a gap between what we saw in the media and the news versus what really was going on? So I think I think it's important to note that you know we it, we have no idea what happened at the party. We we don't know. I, I wasn't there, and there was no, as far as I'm aware, there was no recordings about how a fight was started. But what we do have evidence of is a textbook overuse of force, 
Mm. Right. Um, and so, I mean, without question, guns were not needed. And, in fact, honestly, they risked turning a group of partying teenagers and, and you know, teenagers, surprise, surprise, in, in, in the entirety of history might party every now and then. That's not far outside of the, the, the norm of what, what we can expect from teenagers. But that almost turned into a deadly encounter, right? Or it could have. It was potential, right? Mm. So the ACLU of Texas, I mean, based on the understanding of the Fourth Amendment being your right, to uh, be free of excessive force, you, you, you are protected by the Fourth Amendment from excessive force by police officers, right? So when we look at that video, we see a lot of, um, a lot of bad things, right? I mean, we see, we hear the name calling, right? Um, uh, we see a lack of de-escalation, rather, we see, uh, we see escalation of force. We see uh, what some people could call a warrior mentality, Right um, now, when when we look at the police and what the purpose of police are in in our you know democracy, if we're going to get to that level, the police are guardians. You know, the police are here to protect and serve. And when it is, it's our opinion that when we see this this uh, th- the entire documentation of what we could know, right? It seemed to us that it was it just fell right into the dominant discourse and the, the, the understanding of the reality on the ground that in a lot of police offices around the country, and especially as documented recently, not that it hasn't been there before, but now since there's a camera on phones, we're able to see it a little bit more and we're able to see, have a little bit of a view into the reality of what it is to be an African-American or, or, or in a community of color. Hello? And, and, hello? Mm-hmm. And dealing... This is Emily DiCarlo. Oh, hold on. Hi, Emily. Uh, hi, Dr. DiCarlo. Okay. Welcome on board. <laughs> Thank you. Um, we pleasure. have Joe Swanson from the ACLU of Texas, and he's giving us some background on the McKinney pool incident. Oh, and great. And what we've learned so far is that we really need to get a good understanding of the Fourth Amendment. That's the first thing I wrote down. So um, go right ahead, Mr. Uh, Mr. Swanson. Amen. Right. So, so – this seemed to me to be, and it seems to our, the ACLU of Texas to be another example of a long history of examples of police officers protecting and serving the white dominant class while criminalizing the African American community, right, and communities of color to speak of it, right. So, so to answer your question though we should always kind of recognize that the media is going to do what the media wants to do, if we look at that video, I mean, it, it just seems like a textbook overuse of force, right? Now, don't get me wrong. Police officers, though they're, I mean, they have to deal with life-threatening incidents every single day. They don't, I mean, putting on a badge and putting on the officer suit, you know, in the uniform and going out in your squad car, you have no idea what's coming at you every minute. You don't know what that next call is going to be and or whether that's going to mean you coming home to your family or not, if you have one, right, or even you coming home at all. So don't get me wrong. This is, this is being a cop is a very difficult job, and it, 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 it's, it's easier to, to humanize the police and understand that this is, this is this is 
it's one thing, right? And, of course, we also know that this cop, based on his statements, had seen two suicides uh, right before he went on call for this particular pool party that day. But don't get me wrong. Police officers are agents of the state. Police officers need to be held to a higher standard. So when, when you hear people saying things like, oh, well, um, you know, those kids, those kids, those kids, well, I mean, if we recognize that police officers are agents of the state and have the authority in, that we gave them to pull a gun out, we want there to be policies in place to make sure that the use of force, physical control equipment, on vulnerable populations like kids, for example, is very well thought out and is, there's a lot of training behind it because in the end, those, those, those police officers, like I said, I mean, they need to be held to a higher standard. Um, so um, does anybody have any questions at this point? I was just wondering what is the state of affairs now relative to that situation? Well, uh, since it's kind of a, a little bit dropped out of the media, I'm not quite sure. You know, I'm not from McKinney, and I'm not, I don't have my finger on the pulse constantly over there. Um, but what I do know is that the, that police officer has resigned, um, and I know that those kids have representation. Now, what we have, if we're going to talk about what the ACLU of Texas has done, um, there's a thing called an open records request right, um, where you as a citizen of the United States have a right uh, to have an accessible government, you know what I mean? So what you can do is you can send an open record, anybody can do it, it's a, it's a the Freedom of Information Act that allows that, the, uh, that anyone that is, uh, that is in the United States can, can look at um, or, or ask for information, right? So we sent an open records request um, to the McKinney Police Department um, because if given given the video, we wanted to see a couple things. We wanted to see first, you know, uh, asking for the incident reports, uh, the arrest reports for anyone arrested, logs and transcripts of any 911 calls. Uh, we wanted to see use of force complaints filed since January 1 of two years ago, right, so that we could get an idea of what is the, the history of, of complaints filed against the police department and are they racial in nature, um, racial profiling complaints filed since January of two years ago, um, policies, procedures, and guidelines or training materials governing or concerning complaint investigation procedures and uh, Officer Case Bolt's disciplinary history. Um, and on top of that, what is also very important is and we want to know, are there any policies and procedures, guidelines, manuals, I mean, any training materials uh, whatsoever concerning use of force that they're dealing with, uh, law enforcement interactions with children, language minorities, uh, individuals with mental and physical disabilities, or other vulnerable communities, um, documented and uh, investigated uh, uh, use of force um, incidents with that police department, uh, racial profiling policies uh, maintained under Texas code, um, any investigation of civilian complaints against the, the McKinney Police Department, uh, community policement and engagement plans and, and, and enforcement priorities. I mean, all of these things are things that you would hope that a police department has in place, right? Um, 
you would hope that before this incident, they had already had a manual. They'd gone through trainings over and over again about, and about what does our use of force spectrum look like with a child as opposed to an adult? What does our use of force uh, policy look like with uh, somebody who is mentally disabled versus somebody who is not, right, who is just the average person walking down the street, right? But if we're looking at Officer Case Bolt's actions, it would suggest otherwise, right? It would suggest that all the training in the world um, had not happened. It would suggest that they do not have those kind of manuals. So that's something that we wanted to make sure that if, if – that if they have it, we want to know about it. And if they don't have it, then maybe they should start thinking about having one, right? Um, does that does that, all that make sense? Yeah. Yes. Perfect, perfect, perfect. So um, if you want to – so a good question is, so how does this um, – this McKin- so it, those of you who don't know McKinney, McKinney is a suburb that's north of Dallas, Right. Um, and it's, it is suburbia, and though I mean they definitely have their their problems. I mean you were talking about the housing complaint that was just ruled on today, and, and by the way, I have to say I, I'm really excited about the decision that was handed down um, because it recognizes racism for what it is. Um, racism today, um, oftentimes, does not have intent behind it, but racism. Uh, is in effect, right? And the Supreme Court ruling that was handed down thankfully um, reflected that reality. Um, but if we're going to move east, right, into more rural Texas, in fact, that's where I have a campaign right now. Um, so in east Texas, um, the, it's very rural, right, and they have a very, very um, haunting racial history and haunting presence, right? Um, in East Texas, um, even let's just talk about Texas in general. Right now, um, te- we did a um, we tried to figure out how we can measure racially biased policing. Right? What is it? We tried to figure out what is a good metric that we can use. Where we can look at a police department's data and say, yes, there is racially biased policing happening here. Well, we knew we needed um, first. Uh, a crime that where there's no correlation that exists between the race of the perpetrator and the crime, right? So that's something that white people, black people, brown people, and everything in between does at the same rate, right? And we also were looking for a nonviolent crime because nonviolent crimes, uh, as you all probably know, is a, a huge, huge, huge contributor to mass incarceration, especially amongst young black males in this country. And I'd, I'd point you all to Alex, Alexander Michelle's book, um, The New Jim Crow. It yes. is – or Michelle Alexander, excuse me. Michelle Alexander. It's incredible. <laughs> it's, it's absolutely beautiful. Um, but um, it turns out that the perfect metric to measure racially biased policing, or, at one, or a good one, I would say, is marijuana arrests. And it surprises everybody, right? Because study after study shows that marijuana possession charges – do not correlate to race or ethnicity, right? So me and my white community will be doing that same crime at the same rate as anybody in the black community. So you would think that, like, for instance, um, a community that has half white community, half black community, the uh, marijuana arrest rates would be one-to-one, right? Well, 
um, in Texas, if you're black, you're 2.3 times more likely to be arrested for marijuana possession, right? So that basically is suggesting that there's 2.3 times more black people in Texas than white people. And, and, and I, the all, the all that don't know Texas, that's just not the case whatsoever, right? In no way are we a uh, minority-majority state, right? Um, so where I'm from in Rockwell County, which is kind of on the fringe of East Texas, if you're black, you're over six times more likely to be arrested for marijuana possession. And that's with a, com- a black community that's less than 10% of the population. Now, if you move about an hour outside Dallas, right, east of Dallas, we're talking about Van Zandt County. Van Zandt County, um, uh, unfortunately, if you're black and you're living in Van Zandt County, you're over 34 times more likely to be arrested for marijuana possession, right? Um, And the problem with that is not only is that disturbing, the black community in Van Zandt County is less than 5% of the population, Uh. right? So... Um, and what's even more troubling than that is understanding that that's not just the worst disparity by county in the state of Texas. That's actually the worst disparity in the country by county, right? So Van Zandt County, only an hour outside the, the sprawling urban and suburban area of Dallas, is the worst county in the country for racially biased policing based on that metric, Right. And that's, that's extremely disturbing, right? So, you know, when you're kind of starting the question, okay, then why, why what's happening? What, what, what's the history that, that might be seen that? Well, um, uh, there are places in Van Zandt County um, where up until, well, okay, let's say it this way. The, in Van Zandt County, there are several cities that were very well recognized as sunset communities even when I was growing up. Um, and when I say sunset communities, I don't know if you all know what sunset communities are, but it, yes, so, so the, the, a sunset community is basically where um, there are signs around the area that will say, you know, um, you know, inward, don't let the sun set on your black rear end. Of course, I'm changing language. Right. Uh, right. So, so that, in, in Van Zandt County, that was very prevalent. And in fact, um, up until the early 90s, in one city in Van Zandt County, you know, um, black people were actually not allowed to live there. And the first time black folks moved in, there was one family that lived there. Um, and all of a sudden, all this KKK stuff starts showing up, right? Um, so in Van Zandt County, moreover, even just last year, there was a white minister um, in the Methodist church that used to preach out there during the civil rights movement, Right. Um, and then last summer, he went, drove back out to Grand Saline after being a professor at Southern Methodist University, a, a big university here in Dallas, um, and he self-immolated, and, which means lit himself on fire. Um, and in the, in, the, in the letter that he left, one of the contributors... Oh, that's some gentleman because he was um, doing it because of racism and, and sexism right. and all that. Okay. Right, because he, he felt as though... Um, he did not do enough when he was preaching out there during the 60s, right? That's Van Zandt County, right? So, I mean, it starts to paint a picture about why it might be that over, you're, if you're African-American and you're driving through or living in Van Zandt County, 
you're over 34 times more likely to be arrested for marijuana possession. And don't 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 just focus on that 34 times too, because that only documents the people that were stopped and they actually found something on them. Just imagine how many people have been stopped and they didn't find anything on them. They were just stopped maybe because of the color of their skin, right? So um, this is a real this is this is that's real life. Right, and right now I'm working with um, a few pastors out there to try to change policies and how um, that sheriff's department deals with communities of color in Van Zandt County. And I'll tell you, when I talk to them, the, there is real fear in their eyes. Right? I mean, it's it, what you saw on McKinney. Now imagine, imagine the fear that can be that can exist in a rural community where there is no infrastructure for leadership in the black community or black business right where you are is it is uh what i like to call normalized oppression mm-hmm. right so i'm i'm from there and i used to be a product of there not Van Zandt. i'm of a product of, of the county that's you're over six times more likely which is actually the seventh worst county in the state for that statistic but um I can tell you that um, it's it's dominant discourse to reject the idea that racism is a thing that it can that continues to exist. Well, let me not right. put a spot beam on you, but what sure. what made you different? Did you go away to school? What was the light bulb? At what point in your journey of life did you say, "Wait, I need to join the A"? CLU and I need to do something. What what was it? Um, well, you know, uh, I used to be like I very I very much look like an oppressor, um, and now speaking as you know Joe Swanson, not Joe Swanson with ACLU, I was uh, I was very much um, taking further steps to make sure I I became an oppressor. Right, like there were times um, when. Growing up, where I mean, I mean, just I was, I, my mind was very much molded by my environment, right? As many people are, right? Um, which is one of the reasons that racism continues today to be in the air that we breathe. Um, but one day I was working at a factory, and uh, I worked like a ten-hour shift, and um, um, somebody came to pick me up. You know, afterwards I was really hungry because they only gave us like fifteen minutes to eat. Um, so they picked me up and went to Whataburger, which is like a burger shack, right? And we're driving in, and all of a sudden this car, you know, pulls up in front of us and turns into the Whataburger in front of us. And, and that my friend at the driver's seat says, Joe, do you know why that car looks like that, why that person has that car? And I said, well, why is that? And he goes, well, that person clearly didn't make the right decisions, and they didn't work hard enough in life, right? So we pull up into Whataburger, I look in the driver's side window, and it's my coworker from work, right? And I know that my coworker worked ten hot times harder than I did, right? And I, I was pretty much the laziest person on at that factory, right? And all those people worked ten times harder than I did. So that 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 narrative of saying, you know, um, um, those people, you know, the, those others, right? They're they earned where they are. Well, I mean, the more and more I started to look at it, and when you look at, uh, well, of course, I went to school, right, and I started studying, you know, things like sociology, history of the United States, 
Um, I started studying, you know, the effects of imperialism abroad, et cetera, right? And the more I started looking at the numbers in my own country, right, about who are the people that are going to jail for nonviolent crimes, right? Who is being arrested? Um, who is being portrayed in the media to be this or that, right? Um, um, what do I think when I th- think, when I see somebody walking down the street, right? And if they're black, what does that mean to me? If they're white, what does that mean to me? Um, and I had to ask myself the question, um, is it, can it be just a coincidence that my idea of who's going to jail is a black person? Is it, is it ju- can it just be a coincidence that every time I drive to the poor side of my town, it's only black people living there? And if it's, if it's not a coincidence, and I, could, I can't say that it is because the numbers are just so staggering, then I, it has to be one of two things. It's either, number one, there's something in the DNA of people of color to make them like that, or B, the system has been rigged to where it is more likely that you will end up there, Right. And I had already accepted the idea of, okay, well, we're all created equal. So, therefore, there has to be something in our system, of whether it be of government or our system of speech or our system of thought, our dominant discourse, right, that has to push things and push all the wheels and knobs and levers in order to create the reality that when I was five years old, I would drive down the poor side of town and I asked my mom when we were in the flats, why is it that only black people live here? Right. So it was sparked by, to answer your question, it was sparked by, you know, a small spark of recognizing something that didn't add up to where my philosophy of life and my understanding of the world around me was. And then it took a lot of research and study and talking to people um, because I think it's the human condition um, to not be it's the hardest thing for people, for humans, to put themselves in the shoes of people that are not like them and experience things or understand things that they have not experienced, right? Um, So the more and more and more I tried to do that, um, the more and more and more I started to realize that this whole idea of (laughs) so-called reverse racism how is that even po- right? How is that even possible? So, hmm. so don't get me wrong. Like, it, it, and this is speaking as Joe Swanson again, rather than Joe Swanson at ACLU. But um, my understanding, if I'm going to put it in a nutshell, of my own community is that um, um, white people are either um, racist or or recovering racist, right? And I definitely try to put myself as much as I can in the, in the other column, but it, it is a day to day thing because there is such thing as implicit bias in my environment has taught me how to be biased against black people and people of color, right? And those are biases I have to check every day and ask the question, why do I think that way, right? Is that right? Is that correct? Who does that oppress? I I love the fact that you use that word um, because from my experience online, you know, there I would be a part of a lot of groups that were black, blah, 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 black, blah, blah, blah. So you would think would be only black people in it. Mm-hmm. But there would be non-blacks disguised as blacks, you 
know, they would put, they would actually take somebody's picture from somewhere and crop and paste it and put it up there as if it was themselves. <laughs> but if you use the word oppressor or oppression, that would like, it would set off a nerve, and then that's how they would reveal themselves. So I've never met, um, I've never met a non-black who is comfortable with the truth that there is a, a, a venue of oppression versus oppre- oppressed people going on, and nobody. I'm not gonna say nobody, but it's rare to find someone on the other side that's willing to actually use the word. And I, so I just wanted to commend you on that because. <laughs> that's, that's new to me because I, I even told Shireen, I said, if you have somebody that's attacking you online and you're suspicious of their color, use the word oppressor and they'll go ballistic and that'll blow their cover. <laughs> right, right, that's right. true. And I, mean, um, I wanted to intervene for just a second, Joe, ask you a question. Um, uh, and I'm not going to get real particular about a situation I myself encountered, but mm-hmm. what I will ask you is, does the ACLU at, ever at any point handle civil cases as well as criminal? Uh, yes, but the ACLU is not. The only thing is a lot of people think well, we're an organization that's a direct service organization, but we what we do instead is impact litigation. So that basically means um, if – there's a law that should be, or if there's a law that exi- that does not exist and it should exist to protect your civil rights and civil liberties, mm-hmm. we we litigate that, right? But right. there's a lot of cases of the laws are in place, mm-hmm. and and the protection should be there, but the way it ends up happening in practice um, does not is not is not concurrent with the law, right? Mm-hmm. So. Right. Those tend to be more direct service organizations, and those exist, right? Um, but you know, not very many organizations have the the infrastructure and the resources, and and sometimes you know the foresight to be able to strategically attack our system and the courts in order to create things like um, uh, landmark cases, right? Like we we right. we we are often in the Supreme Court, right? Okay. Because what we do is we we make things new, and mm-hmm. we make sure that people when people aren't being covered by the law because there isn't one, we make sure that that stop that stops because it's going to be a law when we're done. Okay. Now, in light of what you just said, let me ask this question: Is there a place for somebody who will want to do that? You mean like file a complaint? Um, I'm just saying, just handle uh, like the civil the civil uh, aspect of of. Uh, different cases that come up in court because I actually have a case and um I, I'm not I don't want to go into any, any detail at it of it at this time if there was no criminal involved in my, on my part but if you have an actual civil case against somebody say for instance where your identity was stolen and and there was no follow-up on it and no nothing happened and the case is still outstanding and the police keep putting you off and putting you off and putting you off uh, where would a person go to have something like that handled? Um, so what you could do, you know, I don't know. Usually my, my resources are all Texas or north northeast Texas area. Mm-hmm. But what you could do, um, usually there are pro bono legal services around, mm-hmm. right? Um, mm-hmm. And they will, there's also referral services, right, that might be able to refer you to legal counsel, Um um, so it's, it's usually you have to kind of look through all the resources in your community, wherever you're from or wherever you live, 
and trying to figure out um, where are those referral systems, right? They're usually nonprofits or some of them, sometimes even government agencies might do it. Um, does that make sense? Yeah, mm-hmm, it does. But I was just wondering within the ACLU, would there be room for an arm or an extension of those types of services if somebody wanted to delve into that area? In the civil cases? Well, uh, I'm not a part of the legal team and I'm not a lawyer, but as far as I'm aware, I mean, we we get intakes of complaints from the entire state of Texas, which means we deal with a mountain of intakes every single day, right? right? Um, so... Uh, it may, they, I guess my answer is maybe, you know, they, but the thing is I can't speak for the legal team, right, because, like, I'm not a, I'm not a lawyer. I'm, that's, I'm in the local advocacy branch. Right. Right. But probably what you could do, Shuri, is look at the um, website for the ACU, ACLU of Georgia mm-hmm. and file, just put, you know, in the website, just go ahead and put the information in the intake and mm-hmm. see what they come back oh, to I- you with. This this happened in Arizona. Oh, in Arizona. Okay, well, the one in Arizona. Right. <laughs> there is one in Arizona, yes, ma'am. Well, I filed a complaint with ACLU in Arizona, and nothing happened. Nothing. And so mm-hmm. when I called the Mesa Police Department, they tell me the case is still being investigated. It's been almost four years. Huh. Well, you know, one thing that one thing that's an issue for us, that mountain of intakes I was talking about, sometimes mm-hmm. we don't even have the resources and we're in the ACLU of Texas. I don't know what I don't know uh, what's going on over there at the ACLU of Arizona. But in Texas, you know, um, sometimes we can't even get back to people that have filed intakes, right? Um, but you know, what what if if it's of any help to you? Um, one thing that I I I'm, I need to tell everybody that I talk to that wants to file an intake is please 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 do it because otherwise. What are we going to use when we go to the legislature? And I sit when I sit down with Texas legislators, and I tell them, you know, we're we we need to pass this bill, or it would be a good idea to strike that bill out. And they say, okay, well, do you have anybody in my district that's affected by it? Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. That is is crucial for us to have the stories um, that people send us, even if we're not able to take the case. Right. Right. Now, how how does someone how does someone start an organization like yours to even be able to tackle the civil cases that they say oh, you can't handle? What if there was somebody out there who could handle overflow? Well, you know, there's a there's one organization that kind of fills that niche in Texas, um, and they're called the Texas Civil Rights Project. Right. And okay. you might want you might want to talk to them about that because they they are the more of that direct service with you know, whether it be civil or criminal or whatever, right? Um, they take they take a slew of different cases. Mm-hmm. Um, and they have offices in San Antonio, Houston, Dallas. I think they got one in the border in Brownsville, like the Valley area. Mm-hmm. Um, so you might wanna you might want to give them a call. Do you have do you have access to a computer? Yeah, I do. But well, well, what okay. I have to check and see if there's something like that in Arizona. Uh, you could try. You could, you might, you know, if you, if the, I don't know if you have the Arizona's ACLU office yeah, I number. Yes, I do. You could give them a call and maybe they'll, maybe they'll pick up. Maybe, I don't know if they will, you know, but like, you, you know, give them a call and maybe they'd be able to point you towards, you know, what kind of local resources might be there in Arizona because, I mean, they must get intakes all the time of civil yeah. cases. 
right? So I'm sure they have to, you know, they might know who's around to kind of deal with it. But, you know, also look for pro bono groups, right, and just look for other, like, nonprofit groups in, in Arizona. Um, see if you can find anything. Okay. All right. We'll do okay. thanks. I, I have a, um, a question just overall. Yes, what what keeps the ACLU unbiased and objective in carrying out your mission? Um, what's the source of your funding? Um, so we, the source of our funding, and I'm I'm not with development, but from what I'm aware of, the source of our funding um, comes a lot from uh, grant requests, right? So, like for instance, uh, we'll know that you know based on my work and talking to community members, we'll know that. Um, community policing is a big issue in the Dallas region, right? So we'll, you know, write a grant proposal uh, to several different organizations, right? And, and we'll, the ACLU of Texas is very good at saying, you know, we're already doing this work. Can we find anyone that we can tell, you know, we are doing this, this, and that, and you want to fund it? And if they say yes, they say yes. And if they say no, then we'll, 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 go, we'll find other funding, right? So we're really, really good at, um, finding the issue, figuring out how we're going to solve it, and then telling somebody we're going to do it and then seeing if they pay us, right? So um, that, that in a nutshell, that's kind of how we operate in, in gotcha. development. But that's but good it, to know because I, I was it's, just wondering. It's hard if, to do if, that, though, yeah. right, because for a lot of people, okay, the ACLU brand, so I, I used to be organizing up in North Carolina, um, and I was organizing around a lot of different issues, but um, <clears throat> I was with a community group, right, um, and our brand, it wasn't very, it didn't seem, it didn't have a history of the ACLU. So it would take me about <coughs> six months or so to get a meeting with somebody. And it's six months of really hard work, really good organizing work, really strategic tactics, right? And that when I have an ACLU brand with me, though, here in Texas, it could be overnight, right? Like all that six months of labor is cut out just based on the power of our brand. So when I, I guess, um, we're, we've been doing a really good job here in Texas, and so I guess when, when we can tell funders we're going to do this, they understand that we can follow through and they want to fund it, right? So not every or, I don't know if every organization is, is able to do that, but um, that's, I, I, from what I'm aware of, that's how we operate in, in, in the city of Texas. That's key. Anybody else? We have somebody else join us from Eastern Virginia. East Virginia? Okay. I guess you're just listening. That's fine. Well, It um, might be me, Joan. <laughs> no, you came before this person. It might be okay. Tommy. Oh, okay. Tommy, is that you? <laughs> He's not going to say if it is. <laughs> <laughs> Who is that other other Virginia person? Yeah, it might be him. He might be on mute. But um, I want to thank um, Joe for coming on and and sharing um, what he did. It was very insightful for me. Um, I particularly liked the closing remark of what we need to do since we're in infancy, um, what we need to do strategically if we want to be in existence um, for our children is we've got to be able to deliver our results and create a brand that, you know, recognizes that what we say we're going to do is what we're going to do, and that was just perfect. I didn't, I didn't even pay him to say that. <laughs> 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 that was just brilliant. Um, 
anything else you want to share with us, Joe? And then we're going to go into our um, back to our normal, regular scheduled agenda. Um, uh, I would also add, you know, I'm, I'm biased because I'm a community organizer and I've been steeped in the idea that uh, the only way to change a national dialogue is by facilitating local change. Um, but uh, I would definitely encourage y'all um, and take this for what it's worth, but to really focus on local engagement, right? Local policy, city government, what can you do in your neighborhood, right? Because um, at the moment, uh, and I'll quote from somebody that works at this uh, progressive think tank in New York, that they, they say, you know, the social contract is broken when we talk about federal politics, right? Um, that's something that I like to more check in on every now and then, see how crazy it is, and then go right back and start working locally. Because in, in the local arena, um, that's where you can have the most effect, right? Um, that's where you can create the most change and, and, and create the most justice. Um, so that's the, I guess that would be my closing remark. Well, and um, through the, um, I'm just going to do a brief roll call if you wanted to say anything to um, Joe. Uh, so we'll start with North Georgia. I'm sorry, I didn't hear you. What did you say? Oh, would you like to say anything in quote conclusion to Joe? Oh. Well, no, I appreciate it, uh, Joe. I appreciate you coming on, and I'm, I'm I'm glad for the information. Thank you so much for being on the call tonight. I appreciate you. Okay. And New York? Hi, Joe. Um, I just wanted to say I commend you for your honesty. I appreciate the work you're doing, and uh, God bless you. Thank you very much. God bless you, too. And East Virginia 1? That's you, Dr. DiCarlo. Oh, okay. <laughs> I just want to say thanks, too, because he was so transparent. And I like his authentic story of always having to check himself. He did not act like he was far removed from the sentiment that seems to be reflected in the hearts, really, of, um, you know, a lot of Caucasians, to be honest. But I just liked the way he was so candid. And he said, yes. It is a problem, and yes, I do have to still check myself, and I appreciate you for your honesty because that should be an example for other people, not to pretend that they don't know that the problem Mm -hmm. exists or they don't know what you're talking about when you do bring up the problem. But Mm -hmm. I appreciate the fact that you acknowledged it and you used the word oppressor, and few people want to be known as oppressors. But Mm -hmm. you brought it out and said, well, that's what you are if you hold Mm -hmm. another person down because of your attitude and your image of that person. So thank you again. And and hate. And hate. And I would also also say uh, um, that it's it's tempting for me uh, oftentimes to look at the, the work I'm trying to do and think of myself as, you know, superior and elite. Right, right, uh, right. But uh, it, it's very, it's always very humbling to always check myself and remember that it wasn't that long ago that I was that I was saying the exact same thing as the person on the other side of that table. You know what? And I commend you for that, and thank you again. I appreciate you. Thank you, <laughs> and God bless you. And East Virginia Part Two. Our other East Virginia caller? 
Okay, well, it could very well be me. I don't know. Calling <laughs> <laughs> um, in twice. <laughs> yeah, it could be me because I am on two different phones, so it, it, it oh, could wow. be me. But um, I just wanted to thank you so much. Um, I knew from when I talked to you this morning, I was like, this is not accident. This is not coincident. You know, I said, mm. this is definitely, you know, God-ordered. So I just i am I'm really happy that, you know, you didn't think it robbery to um, be with us this late at night. And I know we're mm-hmm. in a different time zone and all that, and I know you had probably tons of other things that you needed to be doing. But um, I just think that it's so important for us to get as much information as possible because, you know, what our mission is is we need to be aware so that we can do the talking and the writing and the advocating for our children who can't do it. They can't do it because, like, my two-and-a-half-year-old, she can barely write the letter A right now. So, you know, these things that are going on around us, um, you really helped bring out, um, you know, just looking at the data, uh, looking at, um, you know, what the Constitution and the amendments actually say um, and being familiar with that and being tied to what's happening with our local policy, our city governments. Um, Uh-oh. <laughs> <laughs> Did one of the Jones hang up? <laughs> I think we might have lost Joan, but she'll oh, probably call. She'll, she'll probably she'll pop be back, in, back in in a second. Mm-hmm. She usually calls right back in. Well, until she comes on, do y'all have any more questions? Any anything else I could enlighten y'all on, or, or, or try to illuminate my 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 work, or anything like that? No, I just wanted to say I appreciate everything you do. I really do. Thank you. It's well, it's heartening to know that somebody is there. Under- Understanding, understanding at least what we, what we Hi, are you all still there? Yeah. There she is. <laughs> okay, yeah, we ha- we're having a storm, so I'm gonna have to um, adjourn shortly. And all the power went off, and it just knocked everything. Um, Doctor DeCarlo, are you there? Yeah, I'm sure it impacted her because she's not too far away from me. Okay. But, yeah, but uh, yeah, it was like this huge storm surge, and just like everything went out. Uh-oh. Okay. But it came back yeah. on. Um. Hey, Joan, I have a question. Yes. When is the next um, call? That's what we have to set, um, our July, August, and September meeting. Um, I know Thursday nights conflict with some people's church obligations, so I was wondering should we change the date to um, maybe a Tuesday or a Monday? I'm open. I just need to know when you're going to have Okay. So uh, down the road, Shireen, does a Monday Um, or Tuesday work for you? I'm, I'm open, yes. Okay, does anyone not work well with a Tuesday? No, Tuesday's okay. Okay, 7 o'clock still works for everybody? Yeah. Okay, so our next meeting will be the fourth Tuesday in July, August, and September at 7 o'clock. It was 7 o'clock to 8. And at that next meeting, we will um, pick up with the local school funding, the HBCU social media and STEM technology analysis, and um, talk about our directors and officers, and um, let's see what else we have on here, and pick up with our, our minutes and our financial report. Basically, for our financial report, we have about $80, $79, and some change in our account. Um, we used $29 for our website, 
And so we have we're we're bare bare bones, but we're not broke. <laughs> and so you know, basically, right now we are just relying on dues. Um, we're offering the first ten people to join um, a fifty percent discount of sixty dollars. And with those ten people in place, um, we will be able to um, go ahead and get our paperwork and everything in order, as well as. Um, you know, have our board of directors. So that's what we're shooting for um, in the next couple of weeks is identifying the individuals that are serious about our mission, who want to be a part of the, the, the early chartering foundation, and then, um, you know, the sky's the limit from there. Any questions? Okay. Dr. DiCarlo, did you make it back? That's not. Um did I just wanted to give a, a quick before the storm really gets here? Um, each from our last meeting, everybody agreed to attend a local um, meeting, a forum, a rally, or some sort, and be able to bring that back in terms of what's going on in your neck of the woods, what's the pulse, what's what's happening. And I went to three meetings. One I hosted myself. Um, I hosted a parent meeting. Um, it was a luncheon. And um, the topic was, you know, what's your child's career interest and aspirations, you know, trying to lead them towards technology and giving them the top 11 careers that are expected to be in year 2020. And that was very interesting. Um, it was a diverse group. Um, I had a, a white father. I had two, three black mothers. I didn't have, you know, so it was more racially diverse than what what we what I've had. Um, but um, it was positive because they all gave it a, uh, a rating of a ten, and they all gave input and feedback of um, that they want this to continue every month. So starting back in September, every month I will be hosting this roundtable lunch with parents, focused on what we can do as a community for our children. The second thing I attended was the city council meeting, and perfect it was perfect timing because they were going over the HUD funds and um, revealing that the city, though it's deemed high poverty, very, very poor, no resources, blah, 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 we're getting like very, 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 very little federal funding for whatever reasons. Um, from the state, we're not getting much money, um, and I'm not quite sure why that's the case yet, um, but it was it was interesting to see the numbers and have the numbers and, and make some connections with people to be able to kind of ask the questions. Um, the mayor is, uh, and this is, it can't be coincidental, but the mayor is actually my coworker at the school. So she and I partnered together and um, created an analysis of absenteeism and comparing that to test scores because test scores impacts the funding that we get as well. And if the kids aren't in school, then obviously it's, it's, it's ridiculous to think that they're going to be able to pass a test at the same rate as a child that's been in school and got the lessons, you know, straight from the teacher's mouth. And so we actually identified one child missed over 74 days of school when you add up all the things that are allowable. So the state allows, you know, in-school suspension is treated different than out-of-school out suspension, which is treated differently than, you know, missing for a field trip, blah, blah, blah. What we did is threw all those parameters away and just said if the child is not sitting in a classroom in front of a teacher, they're absent. That's the way I did the analysis. 
so that it wasn't just based on what was a legal absence. Absence means you're not learning about quadratic equations when the teacher is teaching quadratic equations. It doesn't matter that you were sick with a tonsillitis or a flu or whatever. You still miss the lesson. And it's relative. You know, it's relative to kids who did not get tonsillitis and were sitting in the hospital not getting the lesson. So, you know, that was a pushback at first from the principal because he felt like, you know, I was penalizing him. And I said, no, the reality is the reality. If these parents um, are missing the information for their child, then that's what my job as a parent involvement, and that's what the mayor's job, because she works as the attendance officer, we need to be working as a team to help prevent the problem for 2015-2016 school year. So that's where we left. So that was exciting, and that came from that meeting, you know, from the city council meeting. And then the um, third meeting was, um, oh, OC3, which is a organization of churches. I think it stands for Churches, Community, and Citizens. And they're grassroots, and they're trying to get all of the church leadership to work together to fund things for the children. So, like, there's a universal vacation Bible school where they have, you know, at one place and each church takes a week out of the summer. Um, They're trying to do, like right now they're painting the middle school, you know, volunteers, getting volunteers in the community to to take a classroom. So that's what they're trying to do is is to build a a faith-based community that is getting their hands dirty with doing the work for the community. And um, they're they're startup per se. I mean, it's only been a couple years. And um, the exciting thing is this this is the mayor's brainchild from like a decade ago. And so now that she's mayor, they're getting a lot more support and steam and funding. So it's an exciting time to be in this impoverished little community. And I'm I'm proud to be here, and I'm happy to be a part of uh, hopefully a positive change from uh, the depressed little town known as Hopewell, Virginia, to. Um, a thriving place where people are proud to be from. Did anybody else attend any community activities or have anything um, on their did. heart to share? I did. Um, can you hear me? Yes. Okay, I did. I went to uh, a um, meeting with the judges, uh, the Judge McBride here in Muskogee County. Um, it was... Uh, uh, kind of open forum that was supposed to happen in his chambers, but too many people came, so they ended up going into the courtroom. And it was talking about the juvenile justice system here in in this state, in particular in this city, and um, talking about the number of children that are incarcerated and the number of children in the uh, foster care system and the fact that they were so short on beds and they ended up having to break up all these children and their families and their homes and they're shipping them out of the city and they're shipping some of them out of state because they don't have enough uh, beds here. And I guess what I noticed about that is that these, these beds didn't seem to have any names, and I'm quite sure that they couldn't just come in there calling out all of the families' names and things of that nature. But what I did hear in that meeting, there was the uh, the YDC was there, the Juvenile Justice Department was represented, the uh, DFACS Department was represented, and some other people, and a, a representative of the mayors came, and, and a couple of judges uh, that deal with family law and this kind of thing. And what I did notice, one of the judges say something about $40 million for a prison, and without getting in prison system, without getting into the details of it, he tried to backtrack 
after I stood up and I said, well, I don't understand if you can raise a 1% property tax or sales tax or whatever to raise $40 million for a prison, then what it would take to house uh, each one of these families that you say you don't have money to house and you're splitting them up from their families is about $10 million, about a fourth of that. And uh, he started to try to backtrack off of it saying, um, well, that's something that hasn't happened yet. It's it's not on the table. They haven't. You have to go through all these processes and stuff. I said, no, no. I said, if you, it, 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 you said it. You, you put it out there. You spoke that out of your mouth. So therefore, you lead me to believe that it's something you've actually, that you and and whoever has actually been hashing over. It sounds like to me it's something you actually thinking about in the future, in the days to come. And I said, you know what, this this whole fast, they were doing this whole thing about fast-tracking these people out of the system because they've been sitting in jail for too long without a trial, blah, blah, blah. And I told him, I said, at the end of the day, what this sounds like to me is a, um, well, you fast-tracking them in in order for you to fast-track them back into the system. You fast-tracking them out, you fast-tracking them back in. Because what you're telling me is there's no money there to catch these people in between. There's nothing there for intervention, nothing. But you could raise a 1% sales tax to build a $40 million prison when it would take $10 million to solve the problem. And at that point, I got up and walked out. I just walked out. I'm like, I don't even want to hear this. <laughs> I'm like, I don't even want to hear this because it's the same old, same old. And as I was walking out the door, this lady began to stand up because it got real quiet when I stood up and walked out, you know. Um, and there was one lady there who goes to the budget meetings for the city council, and she came back talking about how broke the city was, but it wasn't a matter of them being broke. It was a matter of what they were spending money on. Uh-huh. And as I got up to leave the room, I could hear this lady standing up at the front of the room addressing everybody, and she said, we already talked about this back in 1995, why are we revisiting it? And I turned around and I said, you'll be re- revisiting it, it again in 2045 uh, simply because these solutions are never going to solve the problem. You know? So I got up and walked out of the room. I'd had, I had heard all I wanted to hear, and uh, something better has got to come out of this community than these little Band-Aid approaches to everything. So with that, I, I yield the Yield the floor. <laughs> well, okay. So you weren't with us last month, but this month I'm going to encourage you to go back. <laughs> to go back. And no, we have your back. back. <laughs> We're going to have your back because you 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 open up the can of worms, but you know we we need you to go back and and, and keep going back until something changes. So um, yeah, we, we we need you to go back. Because a lot, I mean, what what you encountered is probably no different if Lisa was here. I really wanted her to come on because she actually made it in the news. Um, I don't know if you saw the video of the newscast. And she said almost exactly what you just said. She says, I noticed that everybody's gotten silent when I started talking about, you know, um, I forgot what she, I don't know if the topic was incarceration rates or whatever. Mm -hmm. But, um at any rate, it got picked up by the local news. So, you know, when they do the recap of what happened at the meeting, they had her at the mic, you know, talking. So um, a lot of times, and you know, and I'm, I'm, I can't say I'm an expert at this. This is all, you know, 
green grassroots for me just because, you know, of the babies. Mm-hmm. But a lot of times um, it's not logic that gets these things funded. It's the relationships. And people just get the funding because it, they, they, they're in the job. People want them to be happy in their job, and they get the funding. And um, and it's sometimes no deeper than that. I mean, it's it's like uh, I, I go back to when I was 21. I was in my first corporate job, 21, 22, mm-hmm. and we were looking for a million dollars because our, our major product was going off the market, and we had to cut, every department had to cut a million dollars. So everybody, every budget analyst had to go through their departments and try to find a million dollars. So I had a department that was $1.5 million. It was two people, two DOS, mm-hmm. two people in this department, mm-hmm. a man and a secretary. And... Mm-hmm. His salary was something like eight hundred some thousand dollars. Her salary was one hundred twenty-five thousand, and the rest was entertainment and travel. So I would be in meetings, and you know, let's just call him Jake. Jake would be in each meeting, knocked out sleep. Mm. I mean, head cocked back, snoring, <laughs> glasses falling on the floor. Mm-hmm. He was knocked out mm-hmm. sleep. Mm-hmm. And so I went to my supervisor. And I said, hey, you know, we're looking for a million dollars. I got a million dollars for you. He said, you do? We do? Where? How did you come up with a million dollars? I said, hey. I said, I got a million dollars because um, Jake's department, Jake's department eats up $1.5 million uh, every year, and he's not even coherent to participate in meetings. So if we, you know, let Jake retire because he's long past retirement, then um, that frees up a million dollars right there. And i never forget, my, my um, director said, shh. He said, close the door. And he was like, um, you know, you, you seem very bright, and you have a bright future here. I said, okay. He said, then don't ever repeat this again. He was like, just pretend you did not see that and go back and look for the million dollars. Mm-hmm. <laughs> wow. <laughs> So it was like, you know, everybody knew that, you know, we were basically doing a futile exercise of counting paper clips and how much, you know, copy paper we're using and, you know, how many orange juice cartons were purchased and that kind of stuff. But the the key cost was just real waste, you know, because of relationships and favoritism and cronyism and all those other kind of things that we just kept spending what we really didn't need to spend. And um, that's a hard pill for humans to mm-hmm. swallow sometimes. But I think that if, um, you know, like Joe was saying earlier, if we look at the the big picture, the human picture, the overarching picture of, you know, are we using God's resources for the betterment of overall society, mm-hmm. which that was where I was coming from. You know, we as a company are short X millions of dollars. I think it was a billion dollars. It was called a billion-dollar challenge. So they broken up by different departments. It was a million dollars a department. Um, if you're looking at what's good for the overall organization, retiring this man so he can go to sleep at home or go to sleep on a beach or Hawaii or wherever yeah. is what's best for the overall health of the organization and society in general. But because of, you know, the favors and the relationships, um, Jake had to stay on there until, you know, I guess his wife got tired of him and decided it's okay for you to retire. I don't know. 
<laughs> but I, I, that stayed in my mind, you know, at that very young age. And I just I saw that every company I went to, I saw that kind of um, protectionism, if you would say, for certain people. Mhm, 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 mhm. Okay. So keep going to the meetings. <laughs> keep asking the questions. <laughs> I, I, I will. Uh, I will. Uh. <laughs> you you got to keep going. It's just really frustrating, you know. Yeah, as you, you already know. Yeah, you got to keep going. Um, Latre, anybody else have any closing comments? No. <laughs> okay. No, well, for. Um, until we meet again, which will be for record, July the twenty eighth at seven o'clock PM, which is the last Tuesday in July, and then our August meeting will be August the twenty fifth, and our September meeting will be September the twenty ninth, um, seven o'clock PM. Um, be thinking about, you know, if you want to be on the board of directors, an officer and are there members of your family um, in your family tree that um, you can either inbox, you know, privately on Facebook or just give them a call? Yes. Uh, You said the September meeting was, you you said it's the fourth um, Tuesday, right? One, two, three, four. Well, I'm saying like final Tuesday, so the last Tuesday because it has an extra week. It's five five Tuesdays Tuesdays in September, September. yeah. So So we're going to go to the 29th. the 29th? Um. Let's do it the 29th. Let's do it the last Tuesday of the month. Okay. Does that work for you? Yeah, it's fine. Just want to make sure I put the right. Okay, yeah. So it's August 25th, September the 29th. I'm sorry. I'm going back. August, July the 28th. August the 25th and September the 29th. And then at that September meeting, we... um basically do it like we did tonight. We decide on the next three months for October, November, December. Okay. Okay. Um, so that's all I had. Um, the four-step template for local school funding, I'm going to put that on the website, and then um, if you all have input to how we can, um, you know, make it as user-friendly or whatever for individuals. But basically, it's just saying that, you know, I think everybody part of PTAC should look at how the funding for education works in your state. So look at, you know, what the starting teacher salaries are and try to find out what would a teacher that makes, um, a teacher that's been with the system more than five years. And the reason why that's important is because um, if you have a system where you can't attract good brand-new teachers, you have to get the ones that can't get a job anywhere else, that's going to have a certain impact on your student performance. And then if you have a student, a teacher who goes into a system and does brilliantly for five years or more, and now she's looking to, you know, move for location or move for whatever reason, um, if you can't attract her or him to your system, that's a problem because that means that the only people you have coming in are churned teachers. You're having teachers that are coming in because they can't get a job anywhere else and then they're going to leave. Or you have people that come in because they don't have any experience. They're going to gain the experience and then they're going to leave your system to go to better pastures. So, you know, be looking at that. Look at the average property tax for your area. Um, Three, look at the per pupil expenditures. That's required 
across the board. There's a federal amount, and then there's a state amount, and then you you should have a local amount. That and it's usually about anywhere from like fifteen to eighteen thousand dollars per pupil, and that's that's overstated because remember there are certain classes where they have self-contained. So you may have one teacher with only three students, but the expenditures are on average. So you know it it, it I compare it to a private school. Um, an elite private school in our community was like $30,000 a year. So when you look at what we were investing in $18,000 per student per year, the question is what are we what 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 are our students getting for 18,000 that the private school is delivering for 30,000? What's that gap? Because that gap is ultimately a society gap because the kids from that private school are not going to come back to the community to live because they're not from the community. They're from Japan, China. I mean, it's an international private school. Um, The fourth thing is looking at the school report card that comes from the Department of Education. And you can go to the Department of Education's Mm -hmm. website, and that gives you an actual report card on what your school system um, is ranked, What what is it, what's the rating. And... All of this information is kind of summarized for you real easy on www.greatschools.com. And they pretty much give you a good um, comparison of the local schools. You can do comparisons of schools within the same district and all that kind of great stuff. But the important thing is just for everybody to understand what the local um, conditions are with your school system so that you're just fluent with it and you're, you're comfortable with it. And hopefully we'll get that done before school starts back, that everybody um, involved with PTAC will be fluent with those four metrics um, that's going on in their zip code or in their area. Okay. And like I said, I'm going to send it out in an email, and then, you know, if you all have any corrections or things to dress it up, um, I welcome it, and then we'll put it on the website for people to be able to download. Okay. And that's it for now. Unless anyone has any other questions? Not at the moment. Okay. Well, our meeting, oh, well, did I see, Dr. DiCarlo, did you make it back? I think Are you thought. talking about me, Joan? Who's, who's me? Lenita. Okay, I see you just came on. And I, 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 I brought a friend, Carl. Carl oh, hello. welcome, Carl. Hello to everyone. Welcome, welcome. How long have y'all been on? We just we just popped in. Oh, okay, okay. Um, I was just going over the um, the kind of like next steps for our July meeting, but I was wondering if what did Doctor because we had a storm come through and knocked all the power out for a quick two seconds, and so I wanted to know if Doctor DiCarlo was back on because it looks like she is, but I can't tell. Okay, we have somebody from East Virginia join us. Tommy, is that you? Okay, well, um, Lenita, would you like to um, say some things to the group since you're just getting on with um, Carl and (laughs) (laughs) your thoughts about the, the school system? Girl, don't ask me about schools. No, actually, I do have something to say um, about the school system and um, just us starting to be more visible 
for some of these children because the the thing that I hear all the time is it's the parents and the parents need to show up. And what I'm seeing is that a lot of parents don't have the proper education information to engage in a way that is beneficial for their children and they are just being heard it or told what to do. And um, a lot of these parents have been raised to follow direction and uh, respect authority, even if authority is telling you something that is harmful to you. So um, today we went on a a community trip uh, from our apartment complex and took a bunch of kids, and there was a little girl there, and uh, she and her brother were sitting with me, and we're talking because it's good to engage a lot of these kids who don't uh, get that nurturing um, from home with it, it, it I hate to say with a degree, but it comes with the territory when you educate yourself and you start going through that process, taking sociology and psychology classes, you start understanding and recognizing certain needs that are not being met uh, emotionally for children. So we're sitting and talking, and, of course, uh, the brother is an older brother. He's like, she is on my nerves messing with me, and I say, but she looks up to you because you're her big brother. But the little girl opened up, and I asked her, well, um, what grade are you or what school are you going to? And so she said, um, she was going to a different school called Eunice or something, and her brother was like, why are you telling her that? And so I was like, I, what's wrong with her telling me? So it was like a shame there, like you don't tell nobody um, that you failed a grade. So that's ultimately what happened. She failed first grade. What struck me was she failed first grade and they were moving her to another school because she failed first grade, and this is the intermediate schools that I see, but I don't know anything about them. So um, she was telling me, well, she's not going to one school anymore, which is a good school. She's being sent to another school, and it's because she failed the first grade. So I'm like, hmm. So I went back, did some research, most parents don't do, and pulled up um, the two schools, that uh, the school that she said she was going to, which is the intermediate school. Well, another little child that I was engaging telling me about an intermediate school was telling me that you can't take anything up there because these kids are still before you look around and blah, 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 blah. So obviously this is where they send our children. Joan, that conversation we had, this is their 21, 21, 21? 21, um, tw- what did I call it? Yeah, 21 floor. Yeah, basement. so Joan was telling me that, you know, at her company they would uh, push all of the, the folks who wasn't performing to the basement, and they, it was 21, 21. Well, that's kind of what they're doing to these children, and this is starting in first grade. I don't understand how you can automatically send a child into the hostile environment of intermediate schools, which is typically kids with behavior problems and all of that. And so this is where this baby is going, and this is just first grade. And so I'm looking at her like, oh, my God, this is terrible. But how would her mother know? How would her mother know how to engage the school system and say, no, not my child? This is not what you're going to do. How would she know that where they are sending her is not in her best interest? Because they talked to me about my son and tried to convince me holding back my son was in his best interest. I just knew best, and I I tried to fight him, but at the same time, the stress on the child, I just said, forget it, we'll go another route. I'm, I'm intelligent enough or educated enough to know how to do that. The idea that these parents know how to engage or even have the tools or information to do it is something that we have to start looking at and taking upon ourselves to be more engaged and active in those arenas because the blame game is not working for us. Um, taking on this, this idea that 
it's the parent's responsibility, and we know we are sitting in a society that has built the foundation of its society on trapping these parents, particularly parents of color, um, so that they have a cycle of, of mass incarceration, the prison pipeline, to fund these privatized, new globalized prison systems, then we're going to have to take a more forward role in making sure. And Joan already knows I'm on the path of boycotting the first week of school, doing a mass boycott across uh, the country to uh, demand resources be funneled back into our schools and high-tech schools be uh, available to our children in place and not going to another school where they take the dollar resources with them. So that's where I am on education and and what I'm looking at that we as um, the keepers of our people will need to try and uh, focus on and do for these upcoming school years. Thank you. Anybody have any comments, thoughts, reactions? Yeah, this is uh, Chrome. You know, every time I listen to Lenita, she always kind of stirs up some things in me. Uh, <laughs> that, uh, you know, what, 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 uh, initially what, what I said, first thing is, is that when these kids are, are taken out of their they, they different uh, groups or uh, classes, then that removes them from their peers, peers that are, uh, that, that cause them to be motivated to uh, do better. So what happens is, is that whenever you get uh, get these folks uh, in these institutions to uh, try and redirect, redirect a, a child, you know, in their efforts, especially in education, then they don't have the same type of peer pressure to cause them to uh, be motivated for success. For instance, back in my back in my days, what would happen is, is that if a young lady got pregnant, first thing they would do is is put her in another, take her to another school. I guess probably they the idea was that if they didn't have her around, you know, the rest of her peers and the other folks would not, you know, probably wind up getting pregnant or something like that when they was in school. But just because something happened to an individual, unfortunately. Uh, that did not mean that the person academically was not probably uh, a lot further ahead of they of they peers, but taking them out of the uh, out of that group or that their, their classmates, then they lose valuable time and also the uh, the abilities and pressures that that would come from their friends to do to do better. So I'm kind of against all of that kind of stuff like that, you know, doing those uh, traditional things. And, and yeah, so, you know, I'm I'm trying to, you know, find out where I, where I fit in in this, but I just said that just so that uh, the group could be able to understand, uh, you know, probably some of the things um, that, that, that I'm concerned with. Because I think that uh, when you start out with a group, that uh, if you continue with continue on with that group, you know, uh, no matter how dysfunctional it may appear to be initially, the functionality comes over a period of time, mm -hmm. you know, because you have experience and everything that starts feeding in, and we have uh, benefit from the mistakes that, that, that we made initially, and then later on, you know, we become truly functional. Mm -hmm. So that would happen with those, with those little kids, and I think that that's just another systematic approach to uh, destabilize, you know, mm -hmm. the efforts mm -hmm. that, that, that we have going on. That's just me mm -hmm. now. Mm 
That's just, yeah, I'll back out of it. That's my comment. <laughs> well, thank you for that comment. For that mother, um, Lenita, I'm trying to see if I have it. I think I put it on our website. Um, are you all aware that, like, okay, I want to tell you something you don't already know, but are, do you all know that this, the standardized test, um, what makes them standardized is that the same people who are on World Books Board of Directors or testing directors are the same people that are on Britannica, the same people that are on Compton, and the same people who are on the mm-hmm. SAT, the LSAT, the GMAT, mm-hmm. the GRE, and the mm-hmm. MCAT. All of the tests across the board have the same scientists on each of those mm-hmm. those evaluation teams. That's why they're standard, because mm-hmm. if you have somebody come up with some kind of test that's out of the blue, it couldn't be normalized. It can't be standardized. Mm-hmm. So um, one day, a long time ago, <laughs> it was really funny. It was like my daughter was getting ready to start um, kindergarten, and we had just moved to a small rural town that only has three traffic lights. And the Holy Spirit, I kid you not, I, I will testify this to the world, the Holy Spirit said to me, how can you take your baby to the to, to the pediatrician? Because I was, you know, we had an appointment in the morning. How can you send your baby into the pediatrician and not prepare her, not equip her, and you call yourself starting HBCU kids? And I was like, okay, well, what am I supposed to do to prepare my child for the pediatrician visit? And the spirit said to me, you worked in the testing industry, and you mm-hmm. know that the players of each of these tests all work together. Mm-hmm. And you know that they do not send their children into the school system unequipped. Mm-hmm. And I was like, okay, that may be true, but do you really think they have it out there on the World Wide Web? And the mm-hmm. Holy Spirit said, search and see. Mm-hmm. I Googled standardized test preparation for children of, you know, scientists or whatever. Something I put in something really like, just to be a smart behind, I was put a real mm-hmm. specific. And mm-hmm. bam. The whole world book uh, standards of learning came up from preschool up to 12th grade. And it gives you step-by-step every single thing, topic, that a child should know from preschool all the way up to 12th grade. And what's important about that is because when the tests are created, it's under the assumption that the child has already covered these topics, whether they were in private school, home school, doesn't matter. If they have not covered those, when they go to take any kind of test, it's it's brand-new information to their brain. They've never been exposed to it. So I printed out the preschool one, and I sat down with my munchkin, and I just went over it with her. So my husband walks in the room, and he's like, what are you doing? I said, I'm preparing her for, for the um, pediatrician visit. He was like, Joan, how was I preparing her for the pediatrician visit? I said, I know it looks crazy, but this is what the Spirit told me to do. And so, you know, we're just going through the letters of the alphabet and, you know, parts of the body and the different colors and shapes and all that stuff. And he was like, the Holy Spirit told you to do this? I said, I kid you not, the Spirit told me. I didn't even know this stuff existed. It's right here on the website. I printed it off, and here it is. So he was like, okay, all right, my wife. So the next morning, to God be the glory, he went with me to the the doctor's office. Now, how often does your husband get to go to, you know, with you Mm -hmm. to the pediatrician's office? As mm-hmm. soon as the pediatrician walked in the room, we had never seen her before because we just moved to this town. As soon as she walked in the door, she started drilling the bunchkin. And mm-hmm. she was like, what's this? What's this letter? What's this color? What's this shape? What's this? Point to this. Point to that. Where's this? Where's that? And, you know, because I had gone over with the munchkin, she was like, you know, able to go through it. 
tone of voice was still very stern, so she was still kind of like nervous as a four or five year old. But you know, she could basically answer all the questions pretty fluently. Mm-hmm. So the one thing she got stumped on was the doctor pointed to her her wrist and she said, "What is this?" And so you know, she didn't know, and she said, "What is this?" And so she said, "Arm." She says, "No, it's not an arm. What is it?" She said, a hand. She says, no, it's not a hand. What is this that I'm pointing to? And so I jumped in at that point, and I said, well, Doc, we've never told her about those parts. She doesn't know that's a, she doesn't know that's a risk, mm-hmm. you know. And she, was like, and she was like, oh, okay. And then, then when it was time for the my other daughter, who was a year younger, because she had already been through the little thing that I did at home with her, and because mm-hmm. she had just seen her sister, her older sister, get drilled. So mm-hmm. when it was her turn, she was just rattling the stuff off, like, boom, that's mm-hmm. a red, that's a letter B. Mm-hmm. C, it's green, mm-hmm. red, up, down, that's a shoe, you know, whatever. So mm-hmm. the doctor was like, wow, she's a genius. So fast forward, years later, we're at this community fair, and the pediatrician mm-hmm. is like, you know, the main pediatrician in the in the um the, the town, and somebody said something, and she says, oh, those are the Gosier girls. They are brilliant. She said, I've known them when they first got here. They are genius. She says, they are some really, really sharp young ladies. They're both very, especially the younger one. She's very bright. Mm, mm, mm. And so, mm, mm, you know, mm. I share all that to say coming into the system, they had a halo, if you will, from the teachers. Some did not like that halo. I came across mm-hmm. a couple of teachers that were resentful of the mm-hmm. Gosier sisters. Mm-hmm. But by far, the pediatrician had infiltrated into the system that these were very smart girls. Mm-hmm. And that came mm-hmm. from five minutes of preparation from that website. So I tell parents, you know, it may sound ridiculous, but there are some things that your child has to learn at home, period. You cannot send mm-hmm. your child to school not knowing how to write their name, not knowing their ABCs, not knowing how to color, not knowing what colors are. You can't do it. It's not like back when Grandma went to school. And yeah. and you, you hit it on the head because that's the disconnect is that we're looking at when we were predominantly black schools um, and we went through a desegregation process. And when we went through the desegregation process, the way that we took in our children and nurtured our children uh, in their primary uh, early education years was completely different from when we moved into a predominantly white system. It's a lot more competitive, and it's a lot more early education focus. And and well, let me tell you something. I had a teacher. I had a black teacher online one day say to me, "I don't want." I resent what you're doing because I don't want a child coming to my class already knowing those things. I like being the one to finally teach them how to write their name. I like being the one to teach them. I don't want them to know anything. I want them to be a clean slate. And Mm -hmm. my pushback to her was that's very selfish because Mm -hmm. that's not the way the world is going. That's the way it was back when Grandma was living. But that's selfish for you to want to be the one to mold the clay because these days the clay is already set. You know, these children are sitting in a classroom with a child who's had your baby can read, little Einstein, um, uh, hooked on phonics. You know, they have the resources to go to, um, what's the thing, Kumon and and, uh, Huntington Mm -hmm. and and Sylvan. Test prep. Test prep. And you're going to send your child in and they they can't even write their ABCs? Mm Mm-hmm. 
But you let know, me share. Let me share please. this right quick. Uh, let me share this right quick. My daughter was uh, at the beginning of the uh, other semester. She was wanting to go to uh, choir. I go to the school, and uh, they would not let her. Uh, they would not let her be in that class. Now, my daughter actually got full scholarship for uh, her singing and musical abilities. On that particular mm-hmm. day, and what I'm talking about now is parent intervention. It's other ways that you can intervene. So I go in and have a talk with these folks, and, and the lady shows me an inbox with my daughter's uh, document maybe about, shit, I guess it probably maybe about 35 or 40 documents below. I mm-hmm. took my daughter's document out and put it on the top. <laughs> and when I took my daughter's document out and put it on the top, that meant that uh, she was the one that was getting ready to be surfaced. Right. So sometimes, now, if I did not take the time to go in and intervene, you know, in that situation, then my daughter's future would have been changed. Mm-hmm. So sometimes, you know, the intervention is in, a, in other different type of ways, too. Yeah. And see, yeah. these type of things, you have to now. If you if you're talking about you know helping parents along, then uh, it's a certain type of boldness and understanding of the system that they need to uh, know about because some of these things can't be taught. You know, mm-hmm. either they either they have it or they don't. And uh, to wrap that up, Joan, I just received an email from Career Placements. Carl, I don't know if you got it with Texas Southern University. And it was uh-huh. regarding soft skills. So yeah. now we're starting to go back into soft skills because okay. they are saying that the workforce is not being trained in those uh, emotional skills to be able to interact with right. uh, people, uh, yeah. on your respect for people. So it, the trend is getting ready to go back into uh, companies looking for soft skills and all of that, which for us as community um, activists, organizers, these are the things to know so that when you are on the ground talking to your councilman, you know what's coming down the pipe so you know how to uh, how to reach them in your language because when I go to speak right. to them, I can't say, look, we need some money for our community. They don't want to hear that because that sounds like yeah. entitlement handout, just give me something. I have to speak in the terms of we're developing a soft skills program for the community, and we would like your support in developing this program so that we can help uh, funnel into the workforce employees that meet this need because this is the new political jargon. So for for us here, uh, we have to start learning the language and speaking the language and being more proactive in uh, pushing that out in our social mediums, even if people don't understand what we are talking about. Um, and don't know, I, I'll talk it one way, and then I'll talk it where my people can understand. But it, it keeps them engaged enough to say, well, let me go and read what Nita talking about because I know Nita is trying to take care of us, so whatever she's putting in must be important enough for me to at least glance at it and be aware. I get calls from the back end. I get calls from home. Everybody pulls me to the side, and I don't mind they're not out there putting themselves um, at the forefront because not all of us are able to engage in that manner. But as long as you are teaching yourself and learning it like a new language, um, then I think we can start communicating and translating where we can be more effective to the people who just really don't know. They don't have that 
education level to do any type of critical thinking skills. Fear is a big factor because we live in a fear-mongering type of society. So um, being able to articulate to both sides of the fence um, and bring that uh, money in directed to the ground, which is, is where the trend is going, you know, I feel like we're on a good path. And I feel like um, PTAC is in a good position. Um, Black Parent Connect is in a good position. Um, Joan knows that I'm dealing with our councilman down here. We're getting ready to have a black mayor uh, as well for the fourth largest city uh, in Houston. And Joan, his daughter, friended me on Facebook, so that's so cool. But um, um, making those connections and getting in these people's face. And I, what I have recognized, Joan, is that a lot of our politicians are tired. They are ready to um, vacate. Their, their seats because it has gotten so toxic um, in that political arena. They're not being able to get as much as they would like to done, and so they are finding it easier to just kind of deal with um, being back on the ground. And then you have the young people coming in, but we as the the wisdom keepers have to come in and get in with these young people because some of them are spoiled and look at it from a spoiled perspective, and we have to help them understand that it's more than just about your age group, and now you're getting it, and all the rain of wealth is falling on you because that's the cycle to make to give the wealth to our young and then have them believing that whatever we're talking about ha- makes absolutely no sense, and we're just mm-hmm. harping on the past until they reach mm-hmm. our age and realize it's the same thing, and they caught you just like they caught us. <laughs> so, <laughs> go ahead on, my yeah. sister. You ain't doing nothing, nothing but, the, but the truth. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. People stay in the dark and everything, you know, covered up and don't even uh, know really what's going on. They don't all. know what's going on. And we don't yeah, want yeah, our kids yeah. being used as a pawn. That's right. right. Are there anyone else have any closing comments or anything? Who's still on board? Who's still here? I'm My still own. here. Okay. And Trey, are you still there? Yeah, I'm still here. Okay, Joe, <laughs> are you still there? Joe must have gone. Dr. DeCarlo, are you still there? Well, I appreciate you all allowing me to be able to uh, sit in. Just uh, continue to bring me in and um, what I can do, I will do. Well, I it got homework time. for you. Don't worry, I got homework yeah. for you. <laughs> yeah, 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 it takes time. We, it um, takes time, we had a workshop on the front end of the call with um, Joe Swanson, who is from the Texas ACLU, and uh-huh. what he did is walked us through, um, you know, basic civil rights 101, um, and, you know, hearing it live from his perspective I think would be, the best. We were all, you know, in a tray. You could share how you felt, but I, and um, Shireen, you could share how you felt. But I think we all were pretty much um, impressed with his candor and his transparency. I was tempted, Shireen and a tray, to ask him how old he was, but I knew that was disrespectful, so I wasn't going to, you know, out of respect for people, I wasn't going to do that. But <laughs> I wanted to be like, oh, you so cute, <laughs> but that was a bit disrespectful. He sounded like he was, didn't sound like he was 30 yet. But you know, Joan, um, just to let y'all know, because um, despite the the Republican temper tantrum in Texas is rightfully so because, you know, President Obama had a strategy. And, Joan, you know, I've talked with you about that uh, 
as he took office. But what he did was he went into the colleges and he began the community organizer program. And so a lot of these nonprofits were tasked with creating leadership programs uh, to reach uh, those young young people in the school. So we're, we're eight years in. So he started that during his first year uh, presidency. So they're starting to come out. These are the folks that we didn't see or probably didn't even know about unless you were actually getting out on the ground to see them. And so um, a lot of them are starting to be more visible, and they went through that program. And the thing is that his thing is he makes them, the program is that they are tasked with, and this is employed positions, they are tasked with going around the city to different um, grassroots organizations and helping them organize themselves and giving them the information that they need to organize and then getting them in touch with their political leaders and councilmen and so forth. So it was directly um, related to making sure that they get that outreach to the where it's not getting to. You know, the trickle-down effect didn't work, Reaganomics didn't work. So his answer to that was to backdoor it with our, our youth and uh, get them into leadership positions. The thing is we have to show up. Um, to the meetings, we have to show up to um, the town halls, and then we have to stay engaged with those meetings in those town halls um, to see it through to the end. And a lot of those kids are doing that, which is why Black Lives Matter survived, even when they decided to um, uh, charge the ringleaders for the loss of, of uh, money during the, the Christmas holiday season, shopping season. You know, some of those have been charged, and they're looking to try and give them some hard time and take all their money and such. But um, regardless of that, the kids are still doing what they're supposed to do. So it's really about us, the 30s and up. I probably wouldn't say the 30s and up, the 40s and up, um, to start reentering that, that arena. Because the money is there. It's just about us getting out there and helping these kids continue what they're doing and giving them that support. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, that's what I'm saying. That's that's that will be your homework assignment is to listen to the replay. Um, so that way you'll know, you know, kind of like what we talked about. Our next mm-hmm. meeting is going to be July the 28th on a Tuesday. We're going to change it off a Thursday to a Tuesday, so it doesn't bump head with choirs and choir rehearsals and all that stuff. Um, from 7 o'clock to 8 o'clock. And so okay. what I'm getting ready to post um, now is the little four things, um, the little, you know, checklist, and mm-hmm. you all can come back with additions, or I wanted to just keep it easy, just four things that everybody needs to research in their zip code regarding the school system and the funds that are utilized for the school system, and then that will help us drive, you know, forth, um, you know, a, a more of a hands-on education campaign with data, knowing exactly yeah. where the expenditures are and, um, you know, what's happening with the with the money. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And so I'm going to post that right now, and then you all can, you know, forward that around, please, as quickly as possible, so then people see that, you know, we don't just talk on the phone, but we actually do stuff. Joan, I all thought right. the meeting was at 730. I'm so sorry. That's, well, the way the note was, for the ACLU, I was telling him that he didn't have to come in until 7.30 so that we could cover basic oh, stuff, but he came okay. in at 7. So okay. he just jumped okay. right on into it. Okay. Okay. So, 
Okay, no well, all problem. minds are clear. Someone want to give us a closing prayer? Heavenly Father, we just want to thank everyone that's here. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for the initiative that's going on. We pray, Heavenly Father, that you would look upon us with our, and bless us with wisdom, great decision choices, great judgment choices. We pray for everyone's family that's here, Heavenly Father, to keep the little ones strong and that we ask the right questions, Heavenly Father. We thank you and love you and appreciate everything that you do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. That's my cohort. <laughs> <laughs> well, welcome. We were glad to have you. And um, yes. like I said, I'm great. Post this now and I'll tag. Um, is he on Facebook or can you tag him? Carl when I put is this image to open up. up his Facebook account. Aren't you, Carl? Oh, oh he doesn't have a Facebook. Facebook. Y'all just well, send me the email. Well, do this. Do this. Go to uh, blackparentconnect.com. Yeah. And then go to PPAC, hashtag PPAC, uh-huh. it's a tab, and there's uh-huh. a place for you to, um, you know, sign up, put in an application or whatever, and then that will right. put you on a mailing list. Okay. Okay, we can do that. All right. Yes. That'll so work. Out, yeah, go and get that done, Carl, and then um, I'll, I'll keep you posted on our next meeting. And Carl yeah. is actually going to be our San Antonio person because that – um, Joan, we don't go over the opportunities, um, uh, but I keep adding to the opportunities. <laughs> and San Antonio huh. is an opportunity um, that we need to look at. And, and for everyone on the call, I always push Texas because Texas might act like they don't have money, but we have the billionaires here because it's the oil boys, and I know we're doing that pipeline for domestic oil. So, um yeah for us to be able to pool the resources in Texas and then start shooting them out uh, is my goal, to be able to start helping um, other areas that are more hard hit than what we're experiencing down here in Texas. Amen. All right. I'll take it easy. I've got to run. Thanks, everybody. Okay, bye-bye.
Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.